welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, I realize April is not the ideal time for a Christmas movie, but this five-minute clip just perfectly captures today's message. It's from a movie I'm sure many of you have seen. It's called The Polar, uh, the Polar Express. It's a great movie, and the scene we watched happens right at the beginning of the movie when this young boy is starting to wonder if wonder is worth it, if hope is just wishful thinking. Life and age are starting to convert his Christmas hope into cynicism. And he has to decide whether or not he is going to board the train to the North Pole and begin the journey of rediscovering hope. We've been talking about defiant hope in this Eastertide series. Jesus rose from the grave, so we have hope that defies the darkness in this world. And specifically today, this resurrection hope defies cynicism. And today we're talking about hope and cynicism. Cynicism is a potent but a quiet kind of sin that we can slowly fall into without even realizing it is happening. Cynicism, I would suggest, is the opposite of hope. It is toxic to the soul. It is particularly toxic to the people who are around us who have to endure our cynicism. And these days, social media forums, among other things, offer endless opportunities to stand at a distance and point the cynical finger at this institution or at that person without having to engage face-to-face with this institution or with that person. Cynicism is a form of what one author calls insider's pride. It's an interesting phrase. The cynic believes that they're on the inside of truth. And so they believe they see through the facade and they can see into the flaws that the facade is trying to hide. So they are the enlightened ones who have a well-founded, hardening distrust of said person or institution. The repeated failures and mistakes are the target of the cynic. If you listen carefully to how a cynic became a cynic, it's often rooted in the repeated failures and the repeated mistakes of a particular person or group or institution, and the lenses through which they process that person, business, group, or institution in the future. It's just all shaped by cynicism. And like most things, there's some good instincts inside of a cynical perspective. It's not entirely a bad thing. I certainly wouldn't want to put it that way. But like most things, some of those good things can easily go bad. Unfortunately, I know this cynical terrain. I do not speak of this topic as one who stands outside of it with a cynical attitude toward those who are cynical. But rather, I come at this as one who has battled this in my lifetime and has battled this as a pastor and has battled this just in living in this broken and fallen world. I imagine some of you are friends with this thing called cynicism as I have been. And in today's world, I would suggest that cynicism is not too far from any one of us. 
Teddy Roosevelt wrote something about cynicism a long time ago, and it just captures beautifully with his predictable, hard and sharp edge, the way of the cynic. He says, the poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many who feel a kind of twister pride in cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. There is no more unhealthy being, no one less worthy of respect than the one who either really holds or feigns to hold an attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty, whether in achievement or in that noble effort which, even if it fails, comes to second achievement. A cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work which the critic never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness which will not accept contact with life's realities. All these are marks, not as the possessor would feign to think of superiority, but of weakness. They mark those unfit to bear their part painfully in the stern strife of living who seek in the affection of contempt for the achievements of others to hide from others and from themselves in their own weakness. The role is easy. There is none easier, save only the role of the one who sneers alike at both criticism and performance. It's quite a mouthful but it gets to the heart of it. The roots of cynicism are often unresolved disappointment. If you just do a quick survey of where you may see signs of cynicism, it's possible and maybe even likely there's some unresolved disappointment that lurks behind the cynicism. I see this in my own, a tired pragmatism as it is sometimes called. Something has been tried again and again without the promised or expected results and cynicism grows. Some of you are familiar with a woman who is now uh, passed away. Her name was Rachel Held Evans and she wrote this, I can't begin to heal until I've acknowledged my pain and I can't acknowledge my pain until I've kicked my dependence on cynicism. Cynicism is a powerful anesthetic, she writes, we use to numb ourselves to pain, but which also by its nature numbs us to truth and joy. Grief is healthy. Even anger can be healthy. But numbing ourselves with cynicism in any effort to avoid feeling those feelings is not. Now again, just to kind of level the playing field, I don't know how anyone can authentically and thoughtfully live in today's world without becoming somewhat cynical. It's really hard not to be cynical. Religion, government, business, education, the media, marriage, sports, faith, the church, politicians, pastors, Christian leaders, Hollywood, all of these provide ample reasons to sneer cynically for all of these have authored innumerable mistakes and failures and sins. So my purpose today is to say to those who are followers of Jesus Christ that his resurrection from the dead inaugurated a fresh and vibrant hope that has the power of God within it and the human soul needs hope. We need hope. We long for reliable hope that does not disappoint. Something we can stand on and it's firm and it's solid and it doesn't move when we kick it. Something that does not disappoint. And the only place I know where this can be found is in the God who 2,000 years ago rose out of his grave.
The world is well stocked with cynicism. What it needs is hope. Let's talk for a bit about a broken and beautiful world. In John 16, Jesus says to his close friends, in this world, you will have trouble. In Romans 8, it says the creation was subjected to frustration and is right now at present in bondage to decay. And so, Romans 8 says, creation groans, waiting for the day when it will be set free. In short, people are broken and this world we live in is broken. So humans and the world do not function as they were intended to function. And we all know this. We live every second in a broken and fallen world with broken and fallen people where all sorts of crazy sins and sufferings unfold. So the institutions that broken and fallen people have created are themselves broken and fallen. And if we were ever handed the reins to one of these institutions, it would still manifest the qualities of broken and fallen. There just is no sector of our universe unstained and untouched by broken and fallen. And this is not to justify the wrongs by these various institutions and people, but to put them in perspective. And yet with all this brokenness, the old hymn says, this is my father's world. And because God is king, this broken world is also a very beautiful world. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these little children, our scripture said. And little children, as you probably know, have eyes and ears and hearts that seem to be a bit more in tune with the beautiful aspects of our world. Easter demonstrates both the brokenness and the beauty of our world. Death on Friday, life on Sunday. I've read this many times before and I keep coming back to it because I can't find anything that is superior to this in terms of capturing both the brokenness of the world and the beauty of the world. It's from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, where he writes, and you can see it on the screen, to Jesus's eyes, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world. It is a world filled with a glorious reality where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control, though he obviously permits some of it for good reasons to be for a while otherwise than as he wishes. It is a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good because of God and because God is always in it. It is a world in which God is continually at play and over which he constantly rejoices. Until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence, the word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. So the Christian perspective says, God is present in every broken moment of this beautiful world. So this past week, while running errands and getting a speeding ticket along the way, taking kids to school who ultimately forgot their lunch, shuttling them to practice where a fight broke out between teammates, yelling at someone we love, acting incredibly selfishly and impatiently, turning away from God, driving down a street too fast and screaming at the person who's telling you to slow down, ignoring God. In all of this everyday life stuff, God was present in every single broken moment. 
And according to Dallas Willard, and maybe Dallas Willard is wrong, but according to him, until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence, the word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. Every visible thing and event glorious with his presence. I was on a plane this past Tuesday. I was in the window seat. Sam was on the aisle seat. So the middle seat was vacant. Some of you know my passion about middle seats, but let's not go there. The middle seat was vacant. Middle seat protocol that you may not be aware of, but middle seat protocol says the following. If there's a bigger guy on the aisle and a bigger guy at the window, then only a small person can choose the middle seat. I mean, this is simple logic. Well, on Tuesday, a big guy starts rumbling through the door and down the plane. And as I sat there pleading quietly with God, please no, please no, please no, he chose to sit in the middle seat next to Sam and I. And let's just say, I did not find that visible event glorious with God's presence. Not at all. What Willard is saying in this incredible statement is what Psalm 139 says and what hundreds of other verses say. And what they're saying is God is not up there in a fluffy sort of misty place called heaven. He is always with us. He never leaves. He never vacations. So we are never alone. There is literally no such thing as empty space. Think about that as it relates to this gathering. We're never alone. This is not just a gathering. This is not just, oh, that thing we do. I'm not trying to elevate this over anything else. I'm just trying to say, put into perspective, this is not just come in, sit down, check the box, sing some songs, listen to this guy talk too long, and go home. There's something about gathering together, and there is no empty space because God is always with us. God is present in every broken moment of this beautiful world. Think about that as it relates to hope and cynicism. Think about that right at the point where you feel like cynicism might be growing. When this starts to sink in a bit, our thoughts being filled with God, the presence of God with us at all times, every visible event and experience glorious with his presence. When that starts to sink in, this broken world starts to look just a little bit different. Our lives look a little bit different. Other broken people and broken institutions start to look a little bit different. Broken, yes, but beautiful because of God and therefore a flicker of hope. Let's look at creeping cynicism and explore that for just a bit more. And I want to be a bit autobiographical here. I mentioned that this has been a bit of a journey for me. I've never thought of myself as overly cynical, but I am overly idealistic. And idealism sets the table for cynicism. Because idealism in a broken world, when you think about it, is illogical. Why would anyone expect the ideal when the broken real constantly undercuts the ideal? So idealism is a fast track 
to disappointment, and disappointment is usually the root of cynicism. And over the last 15 years or so, I have noticed cynicism slowly oozing out of me. In Polar Express language, with age has come a wondering whether wondering is worth it or legitimate. Now, as I referenced earlier, I am not suggesting we are either hopeful or cynical. That's far too neat. The fact is, we are, every one of us, probably a combination of hopeful and cynical. And the dynamic is fluid as life happens. But as Christ followers, citizens of his kingdom, as those who believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we're to cling to hope and steward hope and dispense hope and breathe hope in every situation, no matter how bleak it may sound. Sound idealistic? Too naive? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these little children. And this is why we desperately need to be around little children. This is why one of the developments over the last decade in our church has been the unleashing of little children. It's very purposeful because they teach us the kingdom of God. Being with children shapes us and forms us in the way of Jesus. We relearn what we have long ago forgotten and discover, rediscover, we rediscover it all through our teachers. And our teachers happen to be children because children believe, children wonder, children trust, children hope. They are the opposite of cynical. And yet in this broken world, cynicism, as you may know, stands at our door almost nonstop and knocks on our door and quietly whispers to us through the door, hey, don't board the train to the North Pole. It quietly whispers to us about that relationship we hoped and prayed would be different, but it never changed. It quietly whispers to us about that dream we hoped and prayed and pursued, but never reached. Or that temptation we fought and battled but never overcame. Or that hurt from way long ago that we hoped would heal but never did. It whispers to us about that sickness our friend or loved one had and we prayed for it to be healed but it never was. What about that faith that was supposed to bring comfort and peace but never did? Or that faith that was supposed to transform but left us unchanged and bitter? Or that leader we thought was one thing, but they turned out to be another thing. Or that church we thought was home, but then it abandoned us. Or that system we thought was good, but then it turned out to do an awful lot of bad. Childlike innocence gets lost in life's disappointments. And one writer who's been helpful to me in thinking about cynicism is a Catholic priest named Ronald Rollheiser. He writes this, there's a cruelty in nature. This is on the screen. Aging has a bitter rhythm. As we get older, slowly, imperceptibly, the body begins to lose some of its natural fragrance. We snore more loudly. And, a slowly, and slowly, a subtle sourness begins gradually to seep through the pores. 
That's nature's way of no moral consequence. What is of consequence is that too often the same process happens in the soul. Here too, a subtle sourness can begin to seep through when in fact the opposite should be happening. As we age, a mellower fragrance should seep through the pores of the soul. This soul sourness, it seems to me, is not only a hazard of those who are older. These days, it seems like cynicism has a wide appeal. In the words of one of my kids, it is trendy to be cynical. Partly because there are these perceived benefits of cynicism, such as a person must be really smart to be able to see through the facade the rest of us have been duped into to believing, and who doesn't want to be thought of as smart? Or cynicism is also beneficial because it provides a reason for us to withhold, to stand back, to be an observer instead of a participant, to critique instead of engage. But cynicism is costly, and I've seen this cost work itself in my own soul. I want to quickly mention three of the costs. I've experienced all three of them. One is isolation. When this cynicism starts to creep, we pull away from the groups and individuals who embody the very things we are cynical about. And distance dehumanizes others, always. Distance turns people into a symbol of what I'm cynical about, and I forget they are an eternal soul. I've got endless examples of this with people in our own church and outside of our church, where isolation from nurtured cynicism in me while presence with nurtured hope. Another one of these soul costs is paralysis. No reason to take any action because it's not going to accomplish anything anyway, so what's the point? No amount of effort will eradicate all the brokenness in the world, so why bother? People get stuck in this mindset. They get paralyzed to do anything. Think in the context of a relationship. When cynicism starts to grow past hope in that relationship, the question naturally comes, what's the point of working at it? When cynicism exceeds hope, it's natural to say, well, why bother? Not going to make any difference anyway. And the third cost to the soul is emotional hiding that happens behind the wall of cynicism. Cynicism builds this wall around our heart and around our emotions, so we don't have to really engage with either. We can remain detached. We can remain distant. We can keep God out here at arm's length. We can keep people out here at arm's length. And this wall of cynicism keeps God and others from actually getting down into the heart of who we are and where our real emotions actually live. So we can intellectualize all this unresolved disappointment at the root of our cynicism. We can talk about it. We can speculate on it. We can pontificate on it. But we never really deal with it because we're just numbing ourselves with the cynicism. So that brings me to the last thing I want to talk about. And I'm using this phrase from many people who write on this. We're just going to call it a second innocence. The way out of cynicism is a second innocence. Whether... Cynicism is starting low or small or whether it's in full bloom. The way out is to find a second innocence, a post-critical, post-cynical, post-sophisticated second naivete, as it's sometimes called. Rollheiser describes it as moving from childish to sophisticated to childlike. I love that flow. He says innocence 
is recapturing the posture of a child before reality. So our real task, he says, is ultimately to become post-sophisticated, childlike, and virgin again. And he's talking here to those of us who are grown-up adults, to be able to stand in front of the reality of this broken and beautiful world with the posture of a child. So in spite of the disappointment in this particular relationship, because God is king and because God is good and because God is with me, I choose to hope for a deeper and more fulfilling love and for God's grace to be sufficient no matter what. In spite of the dreams I've seen shatter because God is king and he is good and he is with me, I choose to hope that God has a future and he has a plan for me. In spite of the paralyzing shame that has plagued me for decades because God is king and he is good and he is with me, I choose to hope for his healing and liberation and that God's grace would be sufficient no matter what happens. In spite of the disappointment, I choose to hope. So I choose to engage I choose to stay in it, to do the best I can, to be present with those who represent the very thing I'm cynical about. See, second innocence means we recapture the posture of a child before the brokenness of our actual lives. We board the train to the North Pole. When we're asked, are you coming? We climb aboard. We choose wonder, we choose hope, we choose belief, we choose joy. And the thing that we get stuck on is we think, but isn't this just childish pretending that the world isn't painful? And the resounding response is, this is not childish pretending that the world isn't painful. This is childlike following of a God who rose from the dead, and the only people who receive the kingdom of God are those who come to it in a childlike way. But how does this all happen? How do we actually move toward this second innocence? How does it become something we're not just talking about, but we actually, in this particular situation where cynicism, cynicism is growing, how do we actually move toward a second innocence? And I'm going to suggest two things really quickly. There's probably hundreds. But the first is to be with children. And I got to tell you, the older I get, maybe it's because a grandchild is coming in a month. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's because I've noticed how this happens, even here. I've noticed what happens when children are around. So one of the ways we rediscover a second innocence is we put ourselves with children and we enter into it. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are childlike. So children and their way teach us the kingdom way. Being with them shapes and forms us in the way of Jesus. We relearn what we have long forgotten when we are with children because children are better than we are at believing, wondering, trusting, and hoping. I mentioned a few weeks ago spending an evening with some very young friends from our church, some children who taught me all about heffalumps and woozles and how they are chasing us and they're trying to catch us. So we have to run away from them. And you might think I'm saying this for effect and trying to be all cute and stuff, but I'm not. My soul moved towards second innocence by being with these children and hearing this little guy scream at me from across the room, Mike, you got to run. The heffalumps and woozles are coming. 
My soul moved away from cynicism and it moved back toward a childlike posture before a broken reality. They helped me board the train to the North Pole. And I would submit to you that in your life, the more you are with children. Now, there are people who are with children all the time going, is he really suggesting I'm with them even more? No. Hand them off. Not to me, but hand them off to somebody and go be alone. I get that. But you see the point. Here's the other one. And I just want to ramble on this for a second and then we'll be done. The second one is this, to be with people face to face and hear their stories. I can't think of hardly anything next to the children thing that has chipped away at cynicism more than taking the effort and having the courage to be with people face to face in a room, at a restaurant, at a coffee table, in an office and hear their stories. And the, 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 the best thing is when they are really different than we are, when the individual is very much unlike us, their past isn't like ours, they don't look like us, they're very different than us in every way. When we sit and listen and hear those stories, something happens to our cynicism. When we sit down and we hear the stories of those that represent the group we're cynical about, something happens to our cynicism. Let me press this down a little bit more. One of the things that is in the air and is going to continue to be in the air, and for the sake of our time today, we're just going to refer to is the cynicism that Republicans have toward Democrats and Democrats have toward Republicans. And I'm not getting political here. I'm getting spiritual here. I'm getting kingdom-centered here by saying this. You know how this goes. So this stuff rises up. It's going to rise up if it hasn't already. And then we look over at that group. We think about them. And we've got all kinds of cynical musings that we just entertain our head with. One of the best things we can do to chip away at that cynicism is to get together with somebody who votes differently and sit across from them face-to-face and have an honest conversation. Not to agree, but to be able to graciously disagree eyeball to eyeball. There's almost nothing that takes little time, a little bit of courage, that has the kind of effect on cynicism as getting together with somebody, sitting at a table face to face, preferably with someone who represents the very thing we're cynical about and hearing their story. You'd be amazed what God can do in those situations. Would you bow your heads? One of the things that strikes me during Eastertide is the fact that what we're really trying to say in just a variety of different ways is that we actually have our hope in God, period. All the rest of the stuff is just window dressing. What we're saying is, is because the resurrection we believe to be true, because Jesus walked out of his grave, every single situation that we are facing, there is hope. Every single inch of this universe has hope. Every single bit of the troubles and the challenges that we face has hope because God has shown himself to be more powerful than the most powerful thing, and that is death. That does not mean everything gets resolved in life. It means everything eventually gets resolved. 
whether it's in this life or in the next. And so our hope is in God and we're standing there realizing that the bottom line is our hope in God does not disappoint because of who He is. We will not be disappointed because of who He is. He is the one thing, the one being that is not broken or fallen. And the resurrection was a loud piece of evidence that said, if you're looking for something to trust, if you're looking for something that's reliable, if you're looking for something that will never leave you, never forsake you, never turn on you, never discard you, never replace you, never throw you aside, you found it. And his name is Jesus. And he is the King of Kings. And he is the Lord of Lords. And when this starts to crawl down into our bones and our being and our souls and our feelings and our emotions and our thoughts, something concrete shifts. And part of what that is, is hope rises. And we believe. And we have our confidence in this God because he is like no other. So Jesus, refresh us in these truths as we face what we're facing. Refresh us in this knowledge that there is no other God like you. No one, nothing compares to you. And we choose today to put our hope in you. Amen.